This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. In 2003, Nike signed 13-year-old Freddie Adu to a seven-figure contract. But Freddie didn't live up to the hype. He has turned down every single documentary project looking closely at the details of his career. Until now. People are going to look at everything you did because of the hype surrounding your arrival and what they think you can be. I'm Grant Wall, and this is American Prodigy, Freddie Adu, from Blue Wire Podcasts. I am so excited to be talking about my hometown today, Detroit, or Detroit, as we've come to call it, with two fascinating writers, and they have written a new book, City of Champions, A History of Triumph and Defeat in Detroit. The first author of this book that I want to introduce is a longtime friend of the show. She's been on before, Silke Maria Weinick professor of German and comparative literature at the University of Michigan. She is author of Tragedy of Fatherhood, King Laius and the Politics of Paternity, which is out with Bloomberg in 2014. She's currently working on an article called Ford Southern Strategy about Joe Lewis and the Ford Motor Company. And she's joined by her co-author, Stefan Szymanski, who is a sports economist also at the University of Michigan. He is the co-author of Soccernomics with Simon Cooper, and he is currently working on a book on cricket, which will make Shireen very, very happy to hear. I want to start out, since we are in this post-election or ongoing election moment, we are recording just a couple of days after the vote in Detroit seems to have gone to Democratic candidate Joe Biden. And Detroit got a lot of attention during that period, particularly you could see the stark differences uh, in the state of Michigan, and that really centered on Detroit. And I just wanted to ask either of you, both of you, what was your reaction to seeing Detroit politics front and center um, in this election? Silka? Yeah, I, I, it made me deeply happy. I must say, to see the energy and to uh, see the numbers climb and to know that Detroit, the, the votes of Detroit would deliver Michigan to the Democrats. If I look at the numbers without the Detroit votes, which went 95% to the Democratic ticket, we would not have um, gotten Michigan. And what was also absolutely fascinating was to listen to the right wing um, talk about the Michigan results and to hear this sneer every time the word Detroit 
was mentioned as if nothing more had to be said. So Detroit is coded the enemy city along with Chicago and Baltimore and I think soon to be joined by Atlanta for the right wing. And I think um, that brings out a defiance and the pride in the city that's always already there, right? So I found it really joyful. Yeah, Stefan, how, how, what's your, how did you feel? Yeah, I, similar. I mean, I think but part of the thing is, I think we both love Detroit and we both love to see Detroit in the public eye and, being acknowledged as the major American city that it is, such a pivotal city. But also, as as Silka says, you know, this sense of those who hate Detroit and making Detroit sound like an alien city, like it's not an American city. And that's I think that's always fascinating that Detroit has this 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 kind of symbolism as being, is it in America? Is it other? Is it elsewhere? And I think that's part of the part of the excitement of Detroit is the this ambiguity that you always find in the way that Americans at large react to it, some some extremely positive and some extremely negative. And it's so rarely considered a border city. And you and you made that point in in your book. And I thought that that was really fascinating because uh, I remember going back and forth between Windsor and Detroit as a kid. But in in that national imagination, I feel like it's seen as this, you know, not a border city. I don't know what you if you think that that's an interesting angle to think about. I think that's exactly right. I think even the fact that it is by a large river and then it's really a city um, shaped by the river is lost on much of America, um, even though I mean, in, I came to an arbor in 1998. And back then, nobody went to Detroit. The students went to Windsor to drink because the drinking age is lower in Canada. But Detroit was hardly part of our cultural life. And that has changed over my now 22 years in Arbor, has changed very dramatically. Um, and I think all the traces of Detroit as the capital of the 20th century are kind of rising again, right? And becoming visible again. And I think um, the, the border city narrative is part of that, but it's still very underplayed. Yeah. Yeah, I've been completely fascinated by this whole border nature of, of Detroit. And as you say, the way in which it's not noticed uh, generally by Americans. And I, I mean, this particularly stands out for me in terms of the Detroit Red Wings, which is, I say to my students here, I mean, in order to provoke, I say, well, they're basically a Canadian team, aren't they, right? Because I mean, 90% of the players and coaches <laughs> who've ever played for the team are Canadians, right? And then yeah. interestingly, Detroiters look back at you and say, no, what are you talking about? There, it's it's an American team. So in some sense, it's a complex web of, of again, people not from Detroit, not recognized that it's a border town and that people in Detroit actually also having this sort of strange affinity with Canada, which is, again, not often part of the discussion about Detroit, I think, and, and is something that I think we found very fascinating to look at in the book. So I want to start with the book and ask you, as an historian, I was almost unable to read it in the order it is because I wanted to read it backwards. So for those of you that will be reading this, and you all should, they tell a series of vignettes um, to open up broader questions about historical moments and race and inequality and gender. But it goes backwards. What made you decide 
to do that to us, to hurt historians in that way? Why? Why? <laughs> so I, I, I said this to um, another historian uh, who, who said, you know, it gave him vertigo to read this book because of the way that it was, we did yes, this. Yes. Um, and <laughs> actually part of the inspiration for this was um, a, a book by William Dalrymple called The Jinns of Delhi, um, which is all about the history of Delhi, in the city in India, but also told going backwards and thinking of Delhi as in as a, in an archaeological sense. So archaeologists work backwards too. They start digging at the top, which is the most recent, and they excavate down. And in some sense, that gives you a very different perspective on this. And the thing about Detroit is. I mean, one of the reasons I think it works particularly well with Detroit is that people approach Detroit from now. They think about what Detroit has been in the last 10, 20, 30 years. And more and more people forget what it was. And some ways it's, it's better to get the now out of the way at the beginning of the book. And actually you get a better, under, some ways you understand Detroit better when you see what it, what it was understanding what it became. And also, to, again, the other thing I think is to try and think about possibilities. And one way to understand possibilities is, as you go back, what happened was not inevitable. And in many ways, what happened was both the, the, both the glory of America and the disaster of America. And, and in some ways, you know, both of those, neither of these things were inevitable. And a lot of these things happened in Detroit. And, and trying to get that perspective and say, well, you know, um, what came later came later, but, you know, let's get back to, you know, where we were at the time before all the sediments were laid on top of each other. I also think that is the way you get to know a city when you fall in love with it. First, you go to, you know, what's going on now? What's today's concert? Is there a good game on? What's the best restaurant right now? And as you connect more deeply to the city, you want to know more and more about it. You want to know, how did this happen? Why is this here? How did this come about, right? What used to be here? You see all these, uh, Detroit is right now so structured and cut up by all these highways, right? Um, which were basically built to allow white people to work in the city and then leave very quickly for the suburbs in the evening, right? Um, and then you start wondering what was here before there was a highway and you learn, well, it was Black Bottom, for instance, right? It was a historic neighborhood um, that had a wealth of culture and knowledge and intimate black life that has gone forever because there is now a highway. But I think this kind of going backwards actually reflects how we get to know about a city, even though I, I acknowledge and apologize for the pain we are inflicting on the um, linear chronology minded or or even even cyclical for goodness sakes but you're still linear you're just going the wrong direction um <laughs> is it but it's good it's good it's good and i want to ask you um so i i want to ask a few things you know i grew up um mostly in uh kind of the i guess middle part of the book um but certainly in my lifetime detroit shrank there was intense gentrification in the aftermath of what they called race riots, which we now would prefer to call some other, you know, resistant and, and, and respectful term. But um, it was a deeply segregated city. It was broke. The auto industry was in decline. The unions were basically 
totally decrepit and attacked and also, you know, with a long history of racism themselves. So you look at this bad moment, right? Let's just go from like, you know, the sort of worst of the worst. Why is sports helpful to understanding this this story and 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 this process that is really taking place, you know, in the 70s until you know, maybe now, maybe not. The book makes some arguments there. But what do you think? Why sports? What does it get us? That's a great question. And I think, you know, the one way I would think about it is is one question you I think you always want to ask is what what do we even mean by a city? What what is a city? Um what makes a city? And Part of our, you know, our, in the opening, we say that, you know, sports is the one thing really that glues together cities nowadays um, as, a, as a collective. Um, when we think of a city, we almost always nowadays think about the sports teams first. And there are very few things that cities do collectively um, that other than, you know, root for the team. And in some ways, I mean, that's particularly I mean, it's it's true of Detroit. I mean, perhaps not uniquely, but but I think more than a lot of other cities where so much else is been um, uh, so much else has fallen apart and so much change has occurred in in Detroit that um, the sports teams are in some sense the constant that have been there. I mean, the the Tigers have been there since what eighteen ninety six. And they've always been at the Tigers, and they've been at, they were at the corner for nearly uh, a century as well. And they maybe they moved the stadium a mile away, but so what? You know, it's still, in some sense, the Tigers are a continuum that have always been there. And so, in some sense, if you want to look at the history of Detroit and see the changes in Detroit, you can measure that. In some sense, the 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 sports teams represent a, a measuring stick, a, a, you know, a level against which you can see the changes that are going on, even though it's still changing. It's still the same city. I would also say, so in some, uh, we keep coming back to this question of Detroit as a kind of very representative, deeply American city, where so many of the major developments. Um, of American society have occurred, right? From the, the birth of the car industry, I mean, it's the American product, right? Even if it wasn't invented, invented in America, to waves upon waves of migration, right? Both from Europe, then the great migrations from the South, then um, later other migrations from Syria, from the Middle East, from Southeast Asia, and so on. Um, so at the same time, sports, I think, has a similar relationship to cultural life as Detroit has to America. In some ways, everything that happens in America also happens in sports and becomes very visible in sports precisely because sports is the greatest cultural practice. Well, not the greatest necessarily in an evaluative sense, but in a sense of audience size. Sports is the most visible cultural collective um, practice globally. I believe, which it kind of pains me to say, I wish it were literature, I wish it were poetry, uh, I wish it were film, but it's not. As someone, if I may say this, I have now written two books on sports and I really don't care much about sports, but I completely fell in love with the stories surrounding sports. I mean, I have developed such a such a relationship with Joe Lewis, which yeah. whom I have nothing in common. I hate boxing. I think it's a horrible, horrible thing to do to each other, to people, and so on. 
But the story of Joe Lewis has so deeply moved and touched me and I'm still thinking about it, writing about it. So to me, that is sports is an entryway into these kind of iconic things. And of course, race is all over sports. And uh, I think we do a good job with some of that in the book. I think in retrospect, we underplayed the role of race in, in hockey. We were a little um, too optimistic about it, I think, because all the stories about hockey were just coming into, into view as we were finishing the book. Um, but it's not just race, it's also city planning, right? Urban renewal as urban removal, as, as James Baldwin would say, right? Um, people moving in and out of the city, economics, um, who funds what, where does the money come from, right? So um, it really is entangled in everything that happens both nationally, but also locally. Um, and yes, as Stefan says, sports teams are kind of now tasked with representing the city in a way no other group does. So um, I want to ask uh, what your favorite chapter to write was. This book has 30 chapters um, and they're fascinating. Um, but what was your favorite one to write? Well, for me, it was it was Joe Lewis. There are actually two Joe Lewis um, mm-hmm. yeah. in the book. He's such a central figure. And fun to write is almost the wrong term because it was heartbreaking to write. I think I had more fun co-writing the chapter on Malice in the Palace um, because that's in, in some ways, um, there's, there's more room for comic interludes in that one, let's say. Um, but the Joe Lewis one was the one that, yeah, that meant the most to me in the end. Mm-hmm. Stefan, do you do you share that or or do you have a different favorite? I mean, I, I think one of the things is that I think we've found is that the, the Malice in the Palace chapter is the one that people find easiest to identify with. And it's a good way of get people getting into the book as well. I think that's that's part of that. But I again, I agree with the Joe Lewis. The Joe Lewis-Max Schmeling fight was, um, was a very important, I found that quite emotional writing about it. It was very, um, it, 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 it triggered a lot of emotional in, in me to just read about it and try to write about it and, and express, again, how the deep injustice around it all uh, was, was very powerful, but also the great glory of, of, of that moment. Um, but a slightly more nerdy sports economics viewpoint, the, the, the chapters about the endless attempts of Detroit to bring the Olympics to the city um, were, were were some of the most interesting for me, particularly the chapter writing about the attempt to bring the 1968 Games to Detroit, which took place in 1963, and the failure to win the Olympics in 1956, which occurred in 1949. And those were, in some sense, intellectually the most interesting for me. So you have a couple of, of vignettes on Ty Cobb or essay, short essay pieces. One of them is, is he really so terrible? I have to ask you on the subject of race. What did you find out? So, I mean, the the arc of the perception of Ty Cobb is really fascinating because, I mean, certainly in his own time, he's not thought of as a racist. He's, he's not very popular with his teammates and he's not thought of being a nice man, but racist is not really something that's tied up with him. Then when, as towards the end of his life, and then when he dies, then suddenly a number of books come out that tag him as a racist and point to some incidents that happens in his lifetime. 
And these incidents then get a lot of publicity and he becomes well known as this famous racist amongst all the other things. And there's these, there's, again, various myths that, that grow up around this. And then a few years ago, a guy called uh, Charlie Lierson wrote a book which basically exonerated him from racism and said, well, no, he wasn't really a racist. He was no more racist than anybody else. And in fact, he was in some ways more progressive. And, and firstly, that's a very interesting arc. And secondly, it's also about how self-serving people are in their presentation of these facts and evidence. And so um, nobody noticed he was racist in the tens 20s and 30s, well, that's again, okay, fair enough, then people did not, generally racism was not considered a big deal, although plenty of black newspapers were telling people that but what was going on and were trying to raise, raise people's awareness, but white people didn't want to listen. And then when the information comes out, still it's tied to, and here's another thing about Ty Cobb, it's still part of, we hate Ty Cobb, and by the way, he's a racist, and that becomes a convenient use and then Learson's book, I mean, again, is, uh, you know, it's been a bestseller. And um, I actually had a, a number of conversations with him, or a couple of conversations by email, because he says a lot of things about him uh, basically trying to deconstruct these incidents and saying they didn't really happen or they didn't happen the way people said. And I just said, I just raised the question, well, is that really true? And haven't you exaggerated? And didn't these things really happen? And what's your argument? And eventually he cut off the conversation with him telling me, well, um, if that's your standard of evidence, then we come from very different places. So basically it's sort of telling me that he knew what the facts were and my uh, speculations shouldn't be considered. I mean, I think that's interesting about how we project our own desires and our own preferences onto historical figures. And I think Ty Cobb is very much one of those people who there's an awful lot of projection um, going on. And I'm convinced he was pretty deeply racist. I think he was pretty deeply racist for his times. Uh, I think the times were very deeply racist. And I think the idea that somehow we should disentangle this and say, well, you were a racist, but then everybody was a racist. I think that's that's a crazy argument. If he was a racist, he was a racist. And that's, and that's, that's what should stand. And there's, in my view, plenty of evidence to support that, uh, that claim. I'm good with that. I think I'm burning it all down. We, we can get on board um, with your revision of the revisionism. So as we all know, 2020 has already reshaped how we work. It's almost over, uh, but businesses across the globe have been challenged to be their most efficient. And guess what, friends? Indeed is here to help. Indeed, what is Indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site, according to Comscore. It helps you find quality candidates quickly so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need and you can pause at any time. This is my favorite as someone who forgets to cancel things and is very ADHD. Um, Amir, can you relate? Uh -huh. do, yes. Do you have, do you have yes. a few things on your account that just like, oops. Keep going. <laughs> yes. So there yes. are no long-term contracts. No long-term contracts. You um, don't have to end up with DAZN for a year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Shireen. And also hope DAZN is not a sponsor of us. <laughs> uh, so instant match. No, this is an exciting thing. <laughs> Uh, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly is Instant Match. 
it delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria, and you can contact the moment you sponsor a job. Making Indeed, okay, this is a, I like this line, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. Woo! Here's our call to action right now. Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Shireen, what's the credit? I have no idea. It is a free $75 credit. Amira, what's the credit? It's a free $75 credit. Thank you. At Indeed. God, I was ready and you didn't call well, wait, me. I, just, I thought Jessica okay. was okay, going to do it. I'm ready. Indeed.com slash blue wire. This is their best available offer anywhere. Jess, what is that website? Uh-oh. Indeed.com slash blue wire. Indeed.com slash blue wire. I have it. Indeed.com. Go there right now before you forget it um, because we forget things. Uh, The offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Okay. We definitely just did an entire segment on data and sports and did not talk about betting. You might be wondering why. Wow. (laughs) It's because we don't know anything about betting. I don't know how many times I can keep telling y'all that. I have no idea. I keep telling you that. I keep telling my uncle that. Like, I don't know how many more ways we could say. I don't know. But again, if you are somebody who likes to bet and knows what to bet on and what all those numbers mean, I can say, I can pretend I'll be like, take the over, take the under. I go against the spread. They're negative five. I'll take them and the points. I can pretend a lot. But the people you really want to turn to is bet online because they give you every possible chance to win this season. They have game spreads and totals and teams and players and coaching props and prop bets are a thing that I'm going to say. Again, I don't know what that means, but Bet Online does. So go there. They give you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their um, bonuses, wager on wins, division championship features all day, every day. So please head on over to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. I do want to ask, in a book that deals with professional sports largely, It is a challenge, I know from personal experience, to include women um, front and center. But there there are women that appear here, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit um, about your your efforts to do that and where when they come in um, to play. Yeah, we we felt bad about it, and we actually talked a lot about it. Right, this is such a um, male heavy book, and of course, you can always say, well professional sports is is very masculinist or has been until very recently. I also think Detroit, and I, I don't have good evidence for that or literature, but my sense is that Detroit is a very masculinist city, um, that um, it doesn't have a history of really famous women the way many other great American cities do. Um, and so we looked pretty hard for stories that would fit the model of the book um, without you know, reverting to some kind of tokenism, say, oh, and here we found a woman. 
right? And then the only really iconic story was the Tonya Harding story. And we felt like, is that what we want to foreground, seeing that they're not really Detroiters? This happened in Detroit, right? But it's really not that tied to the city in the end. And we decided against it. I do wish in retrospect, um, I had written an entire chapter on the roller derby league. Um, I think there's a lot going on there. It's an absolutely fascinating scene. Can you tell us a little more about that, the roller derby there? So there's, there's a very active roller derby league um, in Detroit. And one of my favorite things about it is that it plays in the Masonic Temple, which is one of these grand old buildings that still uh, characterize a lot of Detroit, right? These real palaces, a marble facade, um, three-story high ceilings in the lobby, beautiful decorations. And you take an elevator up to the third floor of the Masonic Temple, and there is in one of these ancient ballrooms the Roller Derby League. And um, we we went. We had a lot of fun. It's a great scene. Um, it's a it's a contact sport, as everybody knows, right? It's a it's a rough sport. It takes itself not that seriously while also being incredibly athletic enterprise. But if you just look at the names of the teams, for instance, of the Detroit Pistoffs, right? There's a lot of a lot of punning going yeah. on. Um, so I really I, I, I love the energy of it. It's a pretty wide sport. Um, again, right? Um, it brings in a lot of women from the suburbs to Detroit. In the end, I felt I would have had to spend a year really learning about it to responsibly write about it. There wasn't enough for me to just digest. Uh, we watched the movie, right, the famous one. Um, we went, we talked to some people. In the end, it didn't come together. But it's a shame. The only um, chapter that really focuses on women is the one about the league, the World War II uh, Women's League, like League of Their Own type of story. And sadly, there weren't too many Detroit women actually in that league. We did a lot of digging, a lot of archival work. Um, again, Detroit women were not that prominent in there, but we still felt that that story went so well together with the role women played in industrial Detroit during World War II that we felt there was a very clear way of tying those two cultural moments together. Um, because in all the chapters, we try to talk about sports, iconic moments, but also tie them sometimes more closely, sometimes less closely to other important things that are happening. And so I like that chapter a lot. But in the end, I can just say, yeah, we're, we're guilty as charged, right? If you say you would like to see more women in this book, I could only say I agree with you, my bad. Um, maybe Stefan has something to add. Yeah, as you say, we th we thought long and hard about various individuals. I mean, so I mean, perhaps the most famous woman sports figure that I could think of in in Detroit is Jean Hoxie, who was a very famous uh, tennis coach uh, from the forties and fifties, and did an enormous amount to raise the profile of tennis in in Hamtramck. And she trained a couple of players who went on to be extremely successful, and. That's a level of success, but but you don't when you think of Detroit, you don't really think of tennis, and it, I'm not sure that it, that it's it's big enough. I do think that that perhaps more research might pay dividends in terms of Detroit and baseball and softball, in the sense that um, one of the things about the league of their own 
all of those teams were really based around um, Chicago. But a lot of the players were Canadian and a lot of the softball leagues around Detroit were Canadian women playing in works teams, playing in teams of, that represented factories. Um, and a number of the players who played in the, those leagues may have, some of them definitely came, like Gwen Stefani came through Detroit, and there may have been more. And there, there is some reference to some tension between the the works teams in Detroit during the war who didn't want to lose the amateur women to go play in the professional leagues and some question of poaching and so forth. There's some interesting questions. And I think there's also a question about going back even further about bloomer leagues in the early 20th century um, and to what extent there may have been women players in Detroit. But Sadly, you know, the research we did couldn't really come up with enough to carry an entire chapter. And, and But I think it's possible that that might bear some fruit if some PhD student at some point wants to, wants to follow that up. Second edition, baby. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Get to work. Polo um, Derby League chapter. Yeah, I, that would be fantastic. Um, there is a question I have. Uh, which is a little more abstract. But growing up, one of the things that I didn't really ever reconcile, and I delivered the newspaper, um, the Detroit Free Press, and I played softball and um, other things in in Detroit, and I was obsessed with sports. And I guess it always surprised me how many African-American sports heroes there were for me it was you know in that moment barry sanders um i'm waiting for that chapter as well as the lemon chapter so please i'm just putting those in there for the next edition um but how is it that it stays so virulently racist like how is it that you can have posters of barry sanders and feel perfectly fine definancing black school districts and perfectly fine, you know, segregating the UAW and union work. And, and I, did, you, did you feel that at all during the writing and thinking? So much so. I mean, in some ways that is such a, I would say that it's one of the guiding questions of the book, right? I mean, race became, the more we wrote, the more we researched, the more it was clear that was probably the central theme, right? Um, and that is, again, why Joe Lewis became germane so much to me, because what's happening there, first Joe Lewis becomes a really deeply meaningful, beloved figure in all kinds of Black communities, right? Maya Angelou has written about the Lena Horn, Langston Hughes, they all talk about what Joe Lewis meant. Then in 38, you have the Max Schmeling fight, which becomes, well, it gets coded as a fight of democratic pluralism versus Nazi Germany, but of course it's a really a fight between two versions of white supremacy, right? And so for the first time ever, America is forced to root for a black man. And they do, they do, and they celebrate him. And there's a lot of talk, oh, here you have the first black American hero um, in Joe Lewis. Um, but then there's also a sense that America never forgave Joe Lewis for being forced to root for him. And when in 48, he tries to retire from boxing because he knows he can't do this much longer, right? He's been champion for 10, 11 years by then. He tries to become a respectable or American 
middle-class businessman and open a car dealership in Chicago, right? Ford sends Ford II, right? Who had taken over by then from Henry, um, sends out a query to the regional dealers all over America says, we have this query here. Joe Lewis wants to become a Ford car dealer. What do you think? And uh, I found that correspondence in the archives at the Henry Ford archives. And those letters coming back, they break your heart. I mean, they are so awful. There's all this, we must keep car dealing a white man's business. If that ever happens, I will not come to a dealer's conference. I cannot share a table with a Negro and so on and so on. But it's also fascinating that in some of these letters, there's this kind of bad conscience coming out when they say, well, from a business perspective, we can't do this. We would never sell another car in the American South. If it were about civil rights, we might want to reconsider, but really it's about the bottom line. But right? so, I mean, 48 is, is, is a fascinating moment in American history, right? You have Truman, you have the Dixiecrats splitting off in the South. Um, you have the military being desegregated. Um, you have huge uproar against that. And that too is in the correspondence if we give Joe Lewis a car dealership, we would be seen to side with, quote, Harry Truman and the communists, which is kind of fairly mind blowing uh, thing to say, right? And so this constant first celebration, but in a very, very narrowly allocated spot and then complete betrayal the moment a black athlete tries to leave that very, very narrow spot, right? I think this happens over and over and over again. And uh, so I don't know if that answers your yeah. question, but I mean, what's shocking is that that is still happening. I mean, shut up and dribble is something we heard just this year or was it last year, right? Um, the way people talk about LeBron James or any, any other black athlete who um, speaks to anything other than how to dribble, right? And of yeah. course, the same hatred goes to Megan Rapinoe when she tries to talk about something not soccer, or when she does talk about something not soccer. And so this kind of stay in your lane, stay in your place is very much, I think, part and parcel of the way um, racism has developed in sports, has been overcome in sports up to a point, then always returns despite sports, with sports, right? I mean, Steph and I often talk about the fact that the owners of sports teams get handed the trophy when a team wins, which to European is like the weirdest thing. I mean, they didn't score any goals. Right? Um, so I think these, these things are all connected, right? The place of the athlete is still so tightly policed it is it is horrible i just wanted to add to that i mean i think also that that you can see this evolve in the history of detroit and it, it's it's very clearly visible when you think of the stories of the sports and this this has a very long history and it, it's it's tied very much to the melting pot theory of the united states and that comes up again and again and detroit is a wonderful or a scary example of that in some ways i mean if you go back to the 1850s you can see that baseball is as a, when it's emerging as a sport is a sport to be played with the gentlemen but not to be played with the children of the immigrants and back back then germans uh irish you know, a coded immigrants, they're, they're, they're the wrong kind of people. And throughout the history of Detroit, you can see in many ways the melting pot worked through sports, through people being able to play sports. And so the Irish become Americans, the Germans become Americans, 
the Italians become Americans uh, in some ways through boxing. You can see that. You can see um, uh, Hank Greenberg, Jewish people can become Americans. You can see all these ways in which America integrates and everybody gets to join the melting pot, but never black people. They're never allowed to be part of the melting pot. And that's the thing that stands out. It stands out in sports and it stands out in the history of the city of Detroit. And that's where instead of becoming allowed to become part of the melting pot, they are, they are punished with segregation endlessly. Um, and that's, you know, a lot of ways we, we, we work, we base our, ourselves on the work of Thomas Sugru, and whose story, history of Detroit is such a, such a seminal, uh, such a powerful work, because um, it tells about how this segregation of Detroit is so deeply rooted in the history of the city and not a recent phenomenon at all. Yeah, and that's something, for instance, this this narrative of the rise and fall of Detroit, which of course we also hook into because it's a very powerful way of structuring it, but it has huge problems because what is seen as the high point, the rise, right, Detroit in its highest glory is of course also a deeply racist, misogynist, anti-Semitic place, right, um, and the rise and fall narrative is sometimes explicitly, often implicitly tied to Detroit becoming black, right? And that is then meant to be the decline of Detroit. And so also try to push back against telling the story that way. And I think the telling it backwards actually helps a little bit with that. Yeah, yeah, you can see that. I wanna wrap up, but there's just a couple quick, you know, questions. One is I uh, was in a mental fight with Mitch Album my entire life, who I wrote letters to as a child. And let me tell you why. It was because I felt that there was something in Detroit sports that was xenophobic. And the fact that soccer was never written about by him was uh, actually part of that, that he was, he refused and he wrote articles about how he hated soccer and to this day, Mitch Album, if you're out there, um, my entire career is dedicated to defeating you morally, ethically, and intellectually on this point. So um, I think he is still out there. Anyway, with you know, creeping around and, and, and knocking soccer. So uh, in the book, you talk about a hopeful future through this soccer club. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? We love DCFC, Stefan. Um, as a member of the board, why don't you? Why don't you start us off? So yeah, I mean, one of the things that that when we were writing this, I mean, Detroit City DCFC came before that, and part of our involvement in the city in the last ten years really has come through DCFC and our love of the team and what they stand for. And one thing that's very powerful about the team is the way in which it. First, obviously, it's a community team. It's not the traditional American way. Um, they've now opened up the ownership to the fans, and it's it's um, it's more like the the way that many soccer clubs around the world are community owned teams, and not and they represent their community. They don't represent the interests of an owner, and that it's such a powerful ideologically, such a powerfully strong uh, uh, model, I think particularly for a city which has which has its problems. And of course, the other thing about it is it's, you know, they bring together the communities in Detroit. And it's not just about black Detroit, it's about Mexican Detroit, it's about Arab Detroit. 
Um, and and one thing DCFC does is brings them all together and, and really creates a path for, for bringing people together and to have this sort of centred in, in Hamtramck now and around this, this iconic stadium at Keyworth. It's a wonderful institution and it's a great way to think about, you know, the new future for Detroit. And I got to add, um, I grew up with soccer in Germany, so it's the only sport I really understand, right, where I feel I can tell who's good, who's not so great. They're not so great. But um, the culture they have built around the club, I think, is really quite wonderful. Um, their fans are a little crazed. They have a, a, a fan club called the Northern Guard, which sounds a little fishy, but they're actually completely wonderful, even though slightly insane people. So there's always multicolored smoke machines. There's always rainbow flags. There's always fuck MLS flags. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of European, but not right wing crazed soccer atmosphere, which I think is very lovely. So the closest model I think in Europe would be FC San Pauli, which also understands itself to be a left wing club, right? Um, with a very strong and engaged um, and again, slightly insane fan base. So if you go to a DCFC game, it's a festival. There's a liturgy of taunting the enemy. There's Slow's barbecue you can you can eat. There's margaritas you can drink along with Stroh's beer and so on. Um, so it's a kind of what we Germans used to call a Gesamtkunstwerk, right? It, it appeals to, to all the senses. But please tell me they're going to have burners. Just as a, do you have burners? Yeah, of course, course they have oh, burners. Of oh, I have strohs. And they have really nice Polish kielbasa. Well, I'm a vegetarian, but the Werners will work. <laughs> you must come and visit us. I you? know. I yeah, must. definitely. I must. Come see a game. Come to a game. Well, on behalf of Burn It All Down, I want to congratulate both of you on this new book, which is truly fantastic. And if you're interested in Detroit, which you all better be, it is wonderful read. It's called City of Champions, A History of Triumph and defeat in Detroit. I think that given what's happened the past week, there's not a better time uh, to run out and <laughs> get yourself a copy of the new press. And um, thank you both so much for being here. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. This is thank great. You for Thanks us. a lot. And how, what pleasure to talk to a Detroiter about oh, this book. Um, that's really fantastic. Thank you. Thank you.